Gone is a podcast about people who have gone missing from the United States and Canada. These people are daughters, sons, sisters, and aunties. They didn't just disappear. Someone, somewhere, knows something. I'm Katie Nordby. I'm April Kraus. And I'm Janelle Feller. These are the stories of the Klein brothers, Kevin Ayote, and Teresa Fire. <laughs> November 1996, author Jack L. High saw a classified ad in the Sunday Star Tribune. The ad said anyone with information about the disappearance of Kenneth, David, and Daniel Klein on November 10, 1951, please call us. Jack called the phone number and then drove to Monticello and met Kenneth Sr. and Betty Klein. This is the story of three of their boys. In November of 1951, Kenneth and Betty Klein had four boys, Gordon, nine, Kenneth Jr., eight, David, six, and Daniel, four. They lived at 2900 Colfax Avenue North in Minneapolis. On Saturday, November 10th, the boys wanted to go to Fairview Park, which was just four blocks away. Gordy, the oldest, needed to restitch the sheath for his knife, so he told the boys that he would meet them under the old oak tree. The younger boys went on their way, when Gordy got there, his little brothers were nowhere to be found. Police searched the area, going door to door and using a bullhorn to call the boys' names. Boy Scouts helped in the search. A tracking dog was brought in, and it led them down a seven-mile path that stopped at the west bank of the Mississippi River near the Lowry Avenue Bridge. The boys would have had to cross an area that is now I-94, but that wasn't built until the 60s. The searchers found nothing along the riverbank. A few days later, about 150 feet above the St. Anthony Falls, they found two wool caps and two Roman Catholic catechisms. Uh, the catechisms were like the boys wore. They were found in a brush pile near the riverbank. The water levels of the nearby dam were lowered and the Edina Civil Air Defense flew over the river. No other remains were ever found. Five days later, the police called off the search. The parents didn't believe that the boys drowned. They sought help from the FBI, government officials, private investigators, and psychics. For years, the parents put an ad in the paper. They searched for the boys up until their death in the 2000s. After the death of their parents, Gordon and his three younger brothers, who were born after the boys disappeared, continued the search. Jack L. High wrote an article about this case for Minnesota Monthly in the 1990s. Years and years passed, and then Jack received an email from two officers from the Wright County Sheriff's Department. Officer Jessica Miller and Officer Lance Sauls had met Kenneth and Betty Klein by chance. They became intrigued with the case and the officers shared their research with Jack. All three believed that the boys didn't drown but were abducted. The case of the Klein brothers has become an orphan case. It doesn't have a home or a county that can and will open it up again. Minneapolis isn't gonna open it until there is some significant and new evidence. Wright County doesn't have the jurisdiction, thus authority to reopen the case, so the case just sits. Jack L. High just finished a book about the Klein brothers in November of 2019. The book is called The Lost Brothers, A Family's Decades-Long Search. Kenneth was eight years old when he went missing. All three boys are Caucasian. Kenneth was 
three foot seven, and weighed 55 pounds. He was last seen wearing a red jacket, yellow plaid shirt, blue jeans, overshoes, black mittens, and a red stocking cap with black trim. He would be 77 years old today. David Klein was six years old when he went missing. He was three foot six inches and weighed 55 pounds. He had brown hair and gray eyes. His front teeth were large and crooked. Daniel had warts on both hands at the time that he went missing. He has a scar on his thumb and the right side of his lower lip. He was last seen wearing a brown sheepskin coat, blue jeans, black overshoes, black mittens, and a red or gray corduroy cap. He would be 75 years old today. Daniel was seven years old when he went missing. He was two feet 11 inches and weighed 35 pounds. Daniel has brown hair and blue eyes. He has a scar near his eyebrow and one in the center of his forehead. He was last seen wearing a red snowsuit, blue overalls, a blue shirt, brown rubber boots, a brown plaid woolen cap, and red or brown mittens. Daniel would be 73 years old today. If you have any information about Kenneth, David, or Daniel Klein, call the Minneapolis Police Department at 612-673-2853. So what sticks with me in this story and is so unsettling is the way the boys are described and that they could only be described that way by a mother. Right. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Right. She knew about the scars that they had because each scar was, um, you know, um, a story, a story in their little lives. And um, the middle child that had the warts on each thumb and uh, each hand, you know, because they were probably working on that. That's I swear, everybody, (laughs) there's a certain age where you're going to get warts when you're that age. It's going to last for about a year and uh, you'll they'll go away eventually. But that he had warts on each of his hands and his large, crooked front teeth. I. He, he's the one that had gray eyes, and uh, um, yes, they were described by the mother. He knew what they looked like. He knew what they were wearing. Those little details. Those little details that just, and it's so 1950s. It's just so, it seems like a simple time and an innocent time then, and then for them to go, to go missing, and the the people that know the most about the case, the parents, uh, Jack L. High, and then um, the officers, they they don't think the boys drowned. They think they were abducted. Well, and it was how far away from where they were from the house. Well, it was a long ways away for little legs to walk. Uh, right, and uh, so the... It led them to the, the Mississippi River, which was seven miles from the home. But it's a, it is a long ways. And I, but they had to cross a large area. When I look at the map of the area that they had to cross, um, I can only see you know, a map from today. So it has I-94 cutting right through the middle of this. But it's still a great distance from um, the river. And the river now, and probably was then, very much industrial uh, area right by the on the river's banks and it's it'd be very interesting for a kid to be in but they would have they would have been that was just really far out of the range of where they would have been allowed to go without their big brother mm-hmm. right and so there was discussion in the articles that I read 
how could you abduct three kids? And as the oldest sibling in my family, I know how you could, because all you would have to do is to take the youngest one, the smallest one. Sure. And there's no way that I or my siblings would not have followed, would not have chased down. I mean, because we were, the older siblings are responsible for the younger siblings. I don't know if that, where that rule is written, but it is written in stone. And that's how, that's how it could happen. It's just the same way as how could three children drown in a river. And that's because one went in, one in, one went in and, and, and the other one tried to save them. And I think the same thing could be said for an abduction, that if something, if one child was taken, <clears throat> the other two would have followed. They wouldn't have allowed, because they're a, they're a team, they're a, they're a gang, and you don't go home, you don't leave one behind. You don't go home without all of them, because um, as, the oldest, as the older sibling, you're gonna be, you're responsible for the younger one. It's a written rule. And that, unfortunately, makes it easy for an abductor to do that then because they have that knowledge that the others will follow. Get in the car or I'm going to hurt this the, one. the young one. Right, yeah. right. And, I mean, the, 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 that scenario says, you know, is, is it, it could explain how three children could be abducted. It also explains how three children could have drowned. Right, right. And yet the, the parents were, the mother was adamant that they did not drown. And to, probably to her last breath. Mm-hmm. Yes. Believed that. Yes, because there was a story that was about the mom um, who, you know, who, to, who had, this, is, this was told by Gordy, the oldest brother, but uh, a car would drive by or something would happen and she was, she, she was always waiting for one of the boys to show up. Her whole life. Hypervigilant. Her whole life. Just waiting for one of them to show up. And, I mean, that would have been a collective thought of, you know, the boys. They're, the, they're, the, they're one and the same. This. The only comforting thing is, is that they were together. But it is so, it's so upsetting. And the truth is, is that they could still be alive today. I mean... They could still be alive. Yeah. What difference could they have made in this world? So, and a parent's never dying search. On September 30th, 1982, three-year-old Kevin J. Aote and his dog went missing from the family's yard in Sugarbush, Minnesota, roughly 18 miles from Bemidji. Kevin lived with his mom and two older brothers. This area is described as rural and wooded with rivers, bogs, and a lake nearby. Nobody noticed Kevin leave the house that day. This wasn't out of the ordinary as described by Joe Klesik, a Beltrami County investigator working on Kevin's case. Kevin was nonverbal and would often wander his own yard, but was always located rather quickly. The community rallied together to provide a massive ground search for the boy, but nothing was found. Officers and community members searched by ground, water, and helicopter. There was no trace of Kevin. Five days after Kevin's disappearance, the family dog returned home. The dog's fur was combed for evidence and its stomach contents were examined. 
officials determined that the only thing the dog had eaten in the last few days was swamp grass. The police then put a tracking collar on the dog and released it several times in various places, hoping that it would locate Kevin. However, the dog always returned home. Because that dog returned home, um, Kevin, Kevin wasn't there. I don't think the dog would have left the boy. Right. It's very unsettling. Yeah. Years passed. In 2011, 29 years after Kevin's disappearance, a Beltrami County Sheriff's investigator re-examined the case by running Kevin's name through various investigative databases. There was a hit on the name Kevin J. Aote, Kevin's social security number, and his birth date in Michigan. Upon investigating further, it was noted that Kevin's parents had moved to Michigan and the person that was using their son's identifying information was currently living in the exact same town. Enlisting the help of Michigan authorities, Beltrami County investigators located a person who had stolen and assumed the identity of Kevin J. Aote and used this new identity for financial purposes. It was found that this suspect was currently known to local authorities in Michigan and had admitted to the identity theft. The identity theft investigation was left to the Michigan authorities and as of 2011 remains under investigation. Beltrami investigators returned to Bemidji after they made contact with Kevin's parents in Michigan to discuss these developments in the case. Investigators determined that it was merely a coincidence that Kevin's parents were living in such close proximity to the suspect in the case. Kevin is described as a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He has a scar on the right side of his chin and also has a cleft chin. His speech is limited and his hearing is impaired. If you have any information, please contact investigator Joe Klesik with the Beltrami County Sheriff's Office by calling 218-333-9111. That seems like it would be more than just a coincidence that this person in the exact same town in Michigan has this information. What was really heartbreaking for me, or tender, I guess, and touching for me was this same investigator has been working with the case the whole way through. And the excitement he must have felt getting a hit on that name and social security number and thinking maybe after all this time he found this boy mm -hmm. and to have it be a case of identity theft and how terribly disappointing that must have been. Yeah, well, and, and maybe not even finding the boy, maybe, you know, that this wasn't actually the child that was missing now using, you know, now using the, his identification, but that right. this person that was using it may know right. something. Or may have information. Right, and that doesn't sound like it was the case. No, no, it didn't. It it sounded like a case of somebody... Um, an opportunist. A, yeah. An opportunist abusing some information that he had stumbled across, sure. so... Um, and this case is still under open investigation. They, um, they do not consider Kevin dead. So what, they're, they're still searching. They're still searching. Um, the, the only indication that he's, that he's not alive, though, is, is that that dog came back. Because, I mean, that dog had only eaten swamp grass when he hadn't left the, that boy's side. So there was no boy there. Right. And you, 
I mean, you can imagine the relationship between that boy and his dog. You, Kevin was hearing impaired, and I mean, today we would describe that dog probably as a therapy dog. Right, and he, uh, unofficially, an unofficial right. therapy dog, right. and how their that guardian <laughs> dog must have just stayed with him. Well, then you talk about swamps too. I mean, swamps. swamp grass. I mean, he went missing in a swamp, right. never to be found yeah. again. Right, and it's I, just so heartbreaking. But that dog would not have left him if there was any, if he was still there. He wouldn't have left him if he was still there. He couldn't dog without trying to. I they no matter what kind of dog it was i mean he stayed with that he stayed with that boy for five days and ate nothing but swamp grass it just breaks my heart just breaks my heart tragic the bulk of the information that i found on this case came from a nine-part series that jay o'connell wrote in 2019 for three rivers news in california other than that there isn't much information it's a nine-part series okay i'm gonna warn you I'm going to take you guys down a rabbit hole because this is, it's a confusing, convoluted, upsetting case. That's a lot of information just to be able to have a nine-part series. Yes. Teresa Ann Beyer was born on April 16, 1971. Teresa had a difficult childhood, marked with physical and sexual abuse, foster care, and school absences. As a toddler, she suffered physical abuse at the hands of her mother, breaking Teresa's ribs and leg. Teresa and her sisters spent time in foster care and then at her great-grandbrother's house before her father was granted custody of her when she was a teenager. Okay, this part's confusing. Her father was married to his ex-wife's brother's ex-wife. The new wife, Margie, was also abusive to Teresa. Police reports say that her father lost interest in raising her and she lived with her great-grandmother, but unfortunately not for long. Teresa's uncle... Don Richmond, was now interested in raising Teresa and gained custody of her, presumably for the stipend that he would receive as a foster parent. I hate all the adults in this story. It gets worse. And when we talk about cycles of violence, family cycles of violence, you can see how this young girl was passed from family member to family member and abused terribly. Dawn had a wife who was a prostitute and a 17-year-old girlfriend that stayed at the house often. The girlfriend remembered Teresa being very quiet and withdrawn and that she was basically a slave in the house. Teresa was made to babysit Dawn's wife's kids, often missing school to do so. Teresa made comments to her great-grandmother and her sisters that her Uncle Dawn was molesting her and that it wasn't just him dreaming. She was held back in school. Of course she was. This is... Of course she was held back. She missed school. She was abused. Her own mother broke her ribs and her leg. Uh, She was passed around so far to four different households, and she's 16 years old. Uh, It's just, I hope it doesn't get worse than this, because it's terrible. It does get worse, and yeah, it's, it's bad. And every adult in this story is hateful. Except for the great-grandmother. Right. And it, in, in the series, it, it goes so much more in-depth about each each adult in this family. Um, but I didn't want to spend too much time talking about each adult because this isn't about them. This is about Teresa. But the great-grandmother, it sounds like, was like in her 60s or 70s. Oh, jeez. Um, and the oldest sister was living with great-grandma. 
And so it, it was just, it became too much um, right. for her to take on all the sisters. So when she was a freshman at the age of 16, she was at least a year older than her classmates. She was considered a slow learner and immature by her teachers. But given what she had been through, it's easy to understand why she was that way. In 1987, at the age of 16, she told her friends that she was planning to go to the mountains with a guy she recently met. His name was Russell Welch, but everyone called him Skip. Skip was 43 years old. Teresa told her friends that he knew all about Bigfoot and the mountains and that they were going out there to find it. He's, he's a predator. And he's again, a- nobody stepped in because why do they care? Because nobody was concerned for this child. Nobody was concerned. So well, go, it doesn't mean go, she, the adults knew about it, but but well, I go mean, to the mountains yeah. with a forty-three-year-old man. Right. On Monday, June first, Teresa's uncle John woke up to find Skip at the house. He offered to give Teresa a ride to school, but the real plan was to go to the Sierra Nevada mountains to find Bigfoot. By mid-morning, the school called Teresa's uncle to say that she wasn't at school. Without actually knowing where she was, her uncle lied and said that she was homesick. Of course, he did. He would later tell authorities that he lied because he preferred to handle the matter on his own. Well, but he was just, he was just CYA. He was just covering himself so that he, because he didn't know what was going on. He did he expected her to be there and, and she wasn't. And so, right. um, this is, you don't, you don't tell the authorities the truth when you don't know right. what, what the consequences might be. On their way to the mountains, Skip and Teresa stopped at his daughter's house because he was having trouble with his car. His daughter was only a few years older than Teresa. She would later tell authorities that she wasn't surprised to see her father with a younger girl. Her father was a drug user, and she asked Teresa if she did drug if she did drugs also, to which Teresa said no. Teresa seemed excited to go find Bigfoot. Skip cashed his disability check, and they were off to the mountains. Around 9.30 that night, Teresa's Uncle John reported her missing. I want to stop here and tell you a little bit more about these mountain trips with Skip. A year before Teresa went with him, another 16-year-old named Michelle went to the mountains with Skip. Two of her male friends insisted on going also to a place called Ghost Canyon. She told authorities that she wondered if Skip had taken drugs because of the way he was acting and the things that he was saying while they were in the mountains. Skip talked about Bigfoot and how there were colonies of them up there. He said he communicated with them telepathically. Skip said that they worshipped women, and he mentioned the presence of devil gods in Ghost Canyon. He even talked about satanic sacrifices. Uh, these, bo- these, these three kids, two boys and a girl, uh, that they would have willingly followed him there. I mean, maybe these stories are happening as they're going or as they're there, but there's just red flags going off yeah. everywhere. Well, and again, this was a nine-part series, so there's a ton of information that I'm leaving out. I'm just kind of glossing over things to give you an idea of who this guy was and what these trips were kind of all about. But this um, Michelle, um, her friends insisted on going with her because Thank it God. sounded super shady. Well, and that didn't... was that could have been the reason why she made it out. Right. Um, she said that she wondered if Skip had slipped some drugs to her also without her knowing. Michelle made it out of the mountains the next day, and her and her friends that went with say it was the weirdest experience, and they don't like talking about it. Now back to Teresa. Authorities were now looking for Skip. On Friday, June 5th, Skip's vehicle was found by the Madera County Sheriff's Office. It was parked near the town of North Fork, a 
small community that serves as a gateway to the shut-eye peak region of the Sierra National Forest. But the Madera County Sheriff's Office didn't locate Skip. Instead, they noted that by the following Monday, the vehicle was gone and that they would try to relocate it. On Wednesday, June 10th, over a week after Teresa left home, authorities found Skip at his mother's house. He claimed he dropped Teresa off at school. Skip was taken in for questioning, and Detective Doug Stokes noted that Skip was very serious about Bigfoot and that he had established a strong relationship with the community of Big Feet that lived in the Sierras and that they made themselves readily available to him. There were several versions of Skip's story as to what happened to Teresa, but the one he stuck with was that Teresa ran off with one of these super intelligent beings that were being protected by Bigfoot. He also said that she would never be seen again because she would not want to come back. Skip said the community lived underground and it was a beautiful society and that she wouldn't want to come back, considering the life that she had. Skip agreed to take authorities to the mountains to show them where the campsite was that he last saw Teresa at. It was a 25-mile drive into the mountains. The series that Jay O'Connell wrote goes more into depth about what they found when they went to, into the mountains, but the main points are that Skip lied about where the campsite was and that Teresa was nowhere to be found. A full-blown search of the area was conducted. They used tracking dogs, the U.S. Forest Service organized volunteers, and an infrared-equipped helicopter was brought in, but nothing was found. What did that campsite look like? So the series goes way more into depth about what they found, but um, it was basically what it came down to was that Skip set up this fake campsite. Um, And the real campsite was like 25 miles away. Oh, yeah. On June 11, 1987, Skip was charged with knowingly removing the 16-year-old from the area, making her truant from school, and unlawful concealment of a minor, or what they referred to as child stealing, which is a felony. A trial date was set for October. Authorities wanted Skip to be tried for murder, but with no actual evidence or a body, they made him a deal. Plead guilty to child stealing and receive a year in jail, and the rest would be dropped, but he had to agree to sign a waiver of his right to claim double jeopardy if a murder case was eventually filed against him if Teresa's body was found. Skip refused to take the deal. So the district attorney's office dropped the charges against him, hoping that one day there would be evidence to charge him with murder. So wait, so so, um, he was given a deal that he could uh, plead guilty to child stealing and serve a year in jail and serve a year in jail and he also had to sign this waiver saying that in the future right to double jeopardy well he waived his right to be tried again so he he could be tried again basically so if they found remains and he could be tried for that murder right so he waived his right to the double double jeopardy to claim double jeopardy. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, because you can't be tried twice for the same crime. Right. right. But. Right. So, they would have only been able to get him on child stealing. Right. Which would probably been a couple of years. I mean, at, at best. He agreed to serve a year. Well, the, the deal was the to deal, serve a but, year. But if, if he didn't accept that deal, it would have been a couple of years in jail. Um, and they decided not to just bring those charges against him without a deal. Uh, so that they preserved their right to charge him with murder right somewhere right. down the road right but they had to let him go free that just free. sucks yeah that does that does and then he didn't take it 
I mean, Which, but his attorney did his job because his attorney knew if you don't take it, they're probably going to drop these charges so that in the future oh, they can try to sure. charge you again. Well, he, he, the, the options are you, you take this deal with the chance that you're going to be tried again in the future. One. Anyway. Right. Uh, you don't take the deal, and there's a good bet they're going to wipe the slate clean because they don't want to hold you for that short amount of time when they could charge you with her murder eventually down the road. So sure. she get off scot-free sure. to continue this strange behavior mm. and possibly having other victims in the future. I, I think that for law enforcement, that had to be the most maddening thing. Absolutely. To, to be able to allow him to go and go Let free. him go. Yeah. And just hope that maybe he'd slip up again. But at what cost? In September 1987, only three days before the trial was supposed to happen, Russell Skip Welch was free to go. Mm. Teresa Ann Byer is still missing. Searches have produced no clues as to where she may be. Foul play is suspected in her case. And police believe Skip had something to do with her disappearance. Because her family life is so convoluted, there is no one to keep her story out there or to push to press charges. Teresa was 16 years old when she went missing. She will be 49 this year. She is described as Caucasian, 5'5", 110 pounds. She was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and laced sandals. Teresa's upper front teeth protrude. She has a surgical scar on her lower left leg. Her nickname may have been Sam. If you have any information about Teresa's disappearance or whereabouts, please call the Fresno Police Department at 559-498-1265. You're right about a rabbit hole. What a convoluted tale of psychosis and abuse. And it's just, it's terrifying. Yeah, and I think that if anybody wants to learn more about, you know, all the all the specific details, that nine-part series that Jay O'Connell wrote is, it's a great piece to read. It's a horrible piece to read. Um, but it tells you more about you know, how all these kind of characters fit together in her life and how every single one of them impacted her life and her story and how it got to this point where nobody's looking for her because nobody cared. And it's sickening to me that that's how this kind of ends or that's left in our minds is that nobody cares to continue her story right. except the individual that did that nine-part series and then now today as we're revisiting it. And that was in 2019. She went missing in 1987. Oh. There is nothing else out there about her until 2019. Wow. She, um, her whole little life was, she suffered her whole, her whole life. And things just got worse. And then Skip shows up. And she disappeared. It is the saddest story ever it's heartbreaking i i almost didn't want to do it because it is because it is so sad and it's so crazy and also because there isn't a whole lot of information out there that can can kind of corroborate this one story but he did a nine-part series he obviously did his work he right. obviously um, he dug he dug, dug because there is it goes so in depth about each one of these people 
in her life. And her grandmother, her great grandmother, sorry, obviously cared deeply for her, but there was only so much that she could do at 70 years old um, for these three sisters. I hope the other two sisters fared better. Um, I think so. In in that nine part series, he talks to the the oldest sister, and she kind of gives some um, some ideas as to what Teresa's life was like um, from talking to her while mm-hmm. she was at the dad's house and while she was at the uncle's house. And but that's really all that he talks about with the sisters. It's it's like a macabre Cinderella story. Uh, I mean, like a like an evil. Uh, story of Cinderella of of a girl that's brought in because she can provide income to the household. She's a built-in babysitter. She's a built-in house cleaner. She's a built-in uh, sex slave. I mean, I she talked about her uncle John molesting her and others, and she probably talked to her great grandmother about that, who didn't report it because that was family. And it's just it's yeah. just maddening and so many people not caring for her and what she had been through in her 16 short years it just breaks your heart it does these stories always leave me wondering if this happened today what type of resources we would have would we be able to find more evidence would more be found um I pray that if it would right. happen today, as opposed to she was born in, I think, 71. Yeah. So if, if it would happen today, that there would have been several places that would have interjected, intervened on her behalf. Yeah, it would, have, it would right. have stopped right away. Right. Uh, hopefully. Well, hopefully. Right. But, uh, I mean, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Because that's, that's, you know, when it's, she was passed, I mean, she was put into foster care, but also in foster care with family members, which which wasn't better for her. Um, but I, I hope that if, if it happened today, that she would not have suffered in this way. And, and that's, a, that's a dangerous loop to get caught into, but it, it still makes you wonder. Yeah. yeah. And I'm curious about, I think it's uh, that Skip went to the trouble to make a fake pamphlet. Right. Um, right. Right. What does that real campsite look like? And they, they had to have found it. They didn't elaborate on that real campsite, but they had to have found it because then they said, you know, the real campsite was like over 20 miles away, but they didn't talk about what they found at the real campsite. Okay. Um, okay. But. So there must not have been, obviously, uh, right. any telling signs. Right. Of, right. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. What a, what a story. We ask that you do not reach out to the families or post names of possible suspects on social media. Missing person photos along with information and articles used for these cases can be found on our website at gone-podcast.com. 